But what everybody does have going for them is their truth. They have their truth going for them. Hello, and welcome to the Shiftmakers podcast, where we share the collective wisdom some of our greatest minds have to offer. I am your host, Marianne Schnall, a writer and journalist. Over the years, I've had the incredible honor of interviewing a variety of remarkable changemakers, and it is my pleasure to share some of these recordings with you for this podcast. Welcome to Shiftmakers. Today, I'm so pleased to share part two of my recent conversation with renowned advocate and author Anita Hill. We spoke upon the release of her new book, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. In this part of the conversation, we pivot to Hill's personal journey from speaking out 30 years ago to today and her insights and advice for those who feel compelled to stand up to those in power for the greater good. Hill's courage testifying in the Clarence Thomas hearings was one of the main reasons I interviewed her several years ago for my own book, What Will It Take to Make a Woman President? Conversations about Women, Leadership, and Power, because she is such a powerful role model for women and girls to stand up against injustice, become leaders, and use their voices to advocate for themselves and on behalf of the causes they care about. I mean, you're such a powerful example, almost like a reluctant spokesperson for this issue, and yet you really felt called to service. I wrote down from our interview, if I don't act, then I will have been a part of something that I don't want to live with. And when we're talking about culture and how girls and women are really cultured to please and be liked and don't make trouble, I mean, I feel like now is a moment we really do need girls and women to be courageous and all people to be courageous and use their voices. How did you find that in yourself and what advice would you have on not worrying what other people think and speaking your truth and fighting for the change you want to see? I it was in a, a very unique position of, of coming to this point. Part of the title of the book is a journey. And it's also about my journey to get to where I needed to be, to be able to understand what my voice was and how I could use it that was authentic and true to me. And so that, I think, is one of the things that people have to be able to start with a sense of who they are in their own self, in their own strengths, and not try to make themselves into something else, because that's the example that you have. You have the example of the advocate who makes fiery speeches and can bring a crowd to their feet and and lead people to movement. I knew that wasn't going to be me. But I also knew that I had some unique skills. I had a law degree. I had background in teaching and bringing message and information to people. I had the luxury, honestly, of being able to put myself at risk because I didn't have children that would also share that risk because there is actual danger in speaking out. So I had a lot of things going for me. What everybody does have going for them is their truth. And they probably have many other things going for them. Maybe for some people, it's their real sensitivity and empathy for other victims so that they can bring people into the conversation through that. But it doesn't have to be a high level platform or a public platform. It could just be a platform among your friends. So tell somebody, it doesn't mean file a complaint. And I say it doesn't mean file a complaint because our systems still don't work. And many of them aren't intended to work for us. So I can't tell everyone to put themselves at that risk, 
But I can say that it is affirming and empowering to know that your story has helped somebody else in some way. Which yours certainly has and continues to, Anita. So thank you for that. You were just talking about how our systems don't work. And this is another thing when I interviewed you that always stood out to me, this quote. I'd asked you about what are some of the most important ingredients for leadership. And you wrote, I think that most important is the ability to connect with the problems of people who are not like you, who have been underserved by government historically, who don't enjoy the privileges that you do. And in your book, you know, you write about how we need to see how all of these different identity factors, whether it's race, class, sexual identity, can influence a survivor's experience of gender violence and how misogyny, racism, and homophobia are at the heart of gender abuse and aggression. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, I'll just tell a quick story. I was giving a talk at one event. It was being videotaped. And the next day, I got an email from a man who because I had mentioned abusive men. And I got an email from a man who said, thank you for mentioning men. Because he said, that hardly ever happens in these conversations that what happens to men are not taken into account. I do not believe that we can solve this problem without taking that into account and understanding its relationship to what happens to women. That's one of the ways that I think that what I mean by that, I think we've got to deal with some of this really high numbers of what happens to different groups, the murders of trans people and a majority of them being trans people of color. So we've got to understand what that's about. Native American women. I was in Utah and these two Native American women said, we drove four hours to get here. And they came up to me and they said, can you help bring the attention to the problem that Native women are having? And there's some really good research and researchers and advocates on this. Um, Sarah Deer is one of them. And she is a Native American, uh, Muscogee Creek tribe. So I can't say that I'm a spokesperson. I don't want to claim being a spokesperson, but I can tell you that the numbers are horrific, that over 50%, and in some cases, some measures as high as 60 or 70% of Native women will be sexually assaulted at some point in their lives. And we talked about some people feeling like it hasn't reached their community. Well, in the native community, it has reached. And different tribes have different experiences. It has reached everybody in those communities. And what we also know is that a huge majority of those, and by some calculations, even the Justice Department's own calculations, about 90% of those assaults and violence against native women are committed by non-Native individuals, non-Native men in particular. So we've got to understand all of this. And again, these are the things that need to come to light. They need to be part of this big public discussion. They need to be part of our understanding of this problem as a public crisis, as opposed to isolated events or unrelated behaviors. We need to look at this as a whole. It is a lot like boiling the ocean and people say, well, it's like, where's it gonna stop? Well, it stops when we start to look at this as a 
crisis and we start to examine how our structures and our systems and our culture are perpetuating. Yeah, and also it reminds me of when we did the interview for my book and talking about having changing leadership and power, because obviously part of it is also having our leadership reflect all of its constituents and having a more diverse democracy. How do you think how we think about power needs to, be, to change? Because when, when I'm hearing everything that we're talking about on all these different levels, it seems like that's part of the issue is also just who has the power, who has the voice. And that's part of, I think, you know, this nation of how we have to change those type of paradigms? Well, systems allocate power. And when we have systems that put almost all of the burden of coming forward, proving their case, all of the presumptions against victims, whether it's in the criminal system or the civil system or private systems, those systems have allocated power to abusers. They have given over the power to abuses. Our, our court cases, in many cases, when they talk about abusive behavior being stray remarks, that the law doesn't have any or shouldn't be involved with, they've allocated power to abusers. And we need to think of it in that way. And so it, this is about power at every level, whether we're talking about the type of behavior if you think about it in a, in a workplace or in a school, you can have all the rights in the world, but that can be taken away from you by one instance of abuse. Mm-hmm. That right to an education can be taken away. How many people have changed their majors or left a school because of their experience that was never, never accounted for? even though they pursued it through the system. So we do have to think about where power lies and how to balance that power so that we're not continuing to perpetuate harm. Season two of Shift Makers was brought to you by the Shift Network. Shift offers courses, programs, and workshops to unlock your full potential through transformative education and media with like-minded allies who are called to create a better world. Visit theshiftnetwork.com to learn more about their online courses, summits, and events. You know, with all that must frustrate and concern you and like anger you that goes on, how do you keep yourself kind of hopeful and centered and energized to continue to do this work? Well, there's power in the struggle, I guess there is. And because I know I have a community, I know I'm not the first person to be involved with this work. Rosa Parks was involved with the anti-violence work, violence against women work. I know I'm not alone today because I know that there are so many advocates out there that have grown and become powerful since 1991, even. That helps me, keeps me from being discouraged. Honestly, this keeps me from giving up. It gives me the energy I need. I hear from people who really need this to happen. That keeps me energized. It motivates me. And also I draw on my, my family history. I think about my mother and her mother in two generations, how much change has occurred. So I know change is possible. And you have to really believe change is possible. So I use believe a lot. I really believe change is possible because I've seen it in the lives of my family. You know, I'm the youngest of 13 kids. So my siblings were raised 
and came of age in a different era. My oldest sibling is 93 years old. 30 years was like a different era. I mean, mm -hmm. I grew up around the time of Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. And so that's different from being growing up around Jim Crow, the Civil Rights Act, you know, objecting against race and gender discrimination was what I grew up with. They had none of that. And so all of those things really come together. And then a lot of prayer and, 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 and some yoga and other things actually go into it. It, it doesn't mean that, that I don't get angry or discouraged, but I have found ways to rebound and stay focused. That's just so beautiful. With all the progress what do you make about, you know, it's, it's hard to just not acknowledge like what just happened in Texas and Roe v. Wade is endangered and we still, the Violence Against Women Act, you know, we don't, isn't threat of not being extended or even just like the setbacks to women in the workplace with the pandemic because we don't have a good caregiving system in place. Like, what do you make of what's happening now? What most concerns you and what do you think we need to do? Well, I think in every one of those things that you name, there's violence in one form or another, or aggression against either the rights of women to their own bodily sanctity mm -hmm. or to their political participation in some cases. And so I think we, we really need to understand how all of those things really tie to just basic safety, well-being, and respect. And that's where I start from. What did each of these things say about how much we value women to have control over their lives, as well as what we say is equal justice and opportunity? And part of that comes from being a lawyer, but also it comes from growing up in a time of Brown versus Board of Education, when we were just figuring out what equal justice for all meant. And thinking broadly about it, that all of those errors were supposed to open us up for more opportunity and a bigger sense of justice. And I look at all of those things that you've mentioned and all of the disparities that happened during the COVID pandemic that continue to exist. And even the surge of violence within homes that occurred, all of it, I look at what can we do to expand protections for people against these harms that come to them? And whether they're the harms from legislation or harms from something like the pandemic. And that's why I think the answers aren't easy. But as I say, you can't fix what you don't measure and you measure what you care about. And we need to be measuring how we are being harmed by a whole slate of abuses and oppressions of women. And right now I'm focused on the subjects that I bring up in the book and the behavior that I talk about in the book, but it doesn't mean that I'm not mindful of all of those other things as well. And it's also shifting power as we were talking about earlier. And we hear a lot about supporting black women and gratitude for the activism, political power of black women, but that hasn't necessarily translated into equity or actual power. What do you think needs to happen 
in order for that type of shifting to take place so that it isn't just gratitude, but actual the shifting of power and influence. You know, we talk about political rights. So now the focus of the conversation is on voting rights. But what we also need to be mindful of is how are our governmental structures and our political structures, how do they then neutralize the effectiveness of rights? You know, in the book, I talk about Christian Gillibrand's going forward, putting out laws, the fact that the Violence Against Women's Act is not being passed, the fact that we know that women of color, Black women in particular, are at a higher risk for it. And so they would benefit even more from a rigorous Violence Against Women's Act protection by the federal government. So we've got to now figure out how our political structures hamper our progress. If we really want to be grateful to Black women, then we'll take away some of the political impediments. And that means every one of our agencies, every one of our government agencies, because this is impacting so many aspects of our lives, whether it's housing, education, criminal justice system, the economy, economic advances, labor, all of these things. We need to have a government that really assesses in every agency, what we need to do to promote equality, mm-hmm. racial, gender equality, individually and intersectionally. And right now we have some agencies that aren't doing it. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but they certainly aren't doing it as a collective mm-hmm. uh, to really get together and understand that every agency in this country owes that to its citizenship. Mm-hmm. And very last question, I mean, we're facing so many things. All of the problems that we've just talked about, in addition to ones we haven't, you know, climate change and global pandemic and just, I mean, there's just so much going on. Bird's eye view, what paradigm shift would you think is most important that you most want to see in the world? And are you hopeful that we can achieve it? The paradigm shift that I would like is centering the needs of the most vulnerable. You know, people can talk about why we don't do that. Instead of having this rising tide lifting all boats, why don't we start with the people we know who need to be lifted? I believe that reaching those populations will in fact lift everybody. Because if you can put put, put things into place that lift people who have been marginalized, the benefits will spread out to those who are always in the center of our our policies. So that's the paradigm shift that I would like to see. I'd like us to move away from this and say, well, if we just make things better for every, you know, these generalized policies that typically favor people who are middle-class or wealthy, actually wealthy anymore because the middle-class is shrinking. If we continue to do that, then we will continue to leave people behind. That's My feeling is start with the most marginalized. At the end of our interview, we chatted casually for a bit, and Anita shared this beautiful image with me before we parted. Now I'm going to leave you with this. It's in the book. It's Polly Murray's quote, hope is a song in a weary throat. And then I asked myself when I read that line, which I love, is do you focus on the song part or the weary throat? Even though you have a weary throat, you still have a song. 
I don't focus on the weary throat part. I still have a song. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again. Shiftmakers was created by Marianne Schnall, and season two was developed by Joy Donnell. Story producer and editor A. Kirsten. Research assistant Angela Joshi. Some audio mixing by Timothy Dixon. Special thanks to Emiliano Limon. For more information about this podcast or our host Marianne Schnall, please visit marianneschnall.com.